Paleo Runner Podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click Ratings and Reviews. You can also follow me on Facebook.com slash RunPaleo or on Twitter at RunPaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugar sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. Today I have with me for an interview distance running legend Tim Noakes, author of many books including Lore of Running, Waterlog, and Challenging Beliefs. In addition, Tim is a medical doctor and exercise and sports scientist. He has run over 70 marathons and ultramarathons. He is well known for challenging commonly held beliefs and I am very excited to be talking with him today for our interview. Tim, thanks for being part of the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks Aaron, it's a privilege to be on your show and I uh, hope we can help lots of runners around the world. It seems in your writing that running kind of permeates the background. And can you tell me a little bit about how you became interested in distance running? Yeah, at, at school, I was completely disinterested in running. I, it would have been the last thing I would have thought that I would make my life work of. And so I played the traditional British sports at school. And in fact, I was in America in 67, 68 on an exchange program. And I was a, it was an amazing experience. I was in Los Angeles for a year. And I remember asking my, my best American friend what he was going to do for sport after he had left school and went to university. And he said he was going to row. And I thought, gee, that's a good idea. When I go back to Cape Town, I'm going to start rowing. And that's how I did that. And when, when I was rowing, we were forced to run. And, I'm, and there, I use that word because that we, were, we ran some days to train for rowing. And I slowly grew, got an interest in it. And then one day, it was so windy, we couldn't row. And I just decided I was going to run around the, the lake that we trained on. And it was about 50 minutes running. And before I'd always stopped at about 25 minutes, 30 minutes. We used to run as hard as we could for 30 minutes. So I went for 40 minutes and about 45 minutes, I got this incredible runner's high. And I said, well, that's it. I just, it's just amazing. And I fell in love with running at that moment. Mm -hmm. And fortunately in South Africa, we do have this race called the Comrades Marathon, which is a 56 mile race and it's, it's iconic. And every South African young man wants to run the race. And of course, young women now as well. And I decided after the second year of rowing that I I wanted to to run the Comrades Marathon. So after four years of rowing, I knew I couldn't continue because it was very time demanding. So I decided, okay, I'm going to concentrate on running. And I ran my first marathon in 1972 and ran the Comrades Marathon in 1973. And that, that was absolutely pivotal because in that, on that day, I, I touched heaven. I tell people I just had this most incredible run and I felt fantastic. And I knew that this was something that was important to me. And it completely changed my opinion of myself and my understanding of not just myself, but of sport and about effort. And I realized that I achieved something that I thought would be impossible. And I said, well, therefore, if you can do it this in running, maybe you can do it in other things as well. Mm -hmm. So it was just a, a, a magic day. And that, that set me on my path for my career. Recently, you've become very interested in nutrition and specifically low carbohydrate diets. How did you come to the idea of low carb diets? Well, of course, when I was running in the 1970s, the idea that you couldn't run if you didn't eat carbohydrates came about. 
about. And the idea that the more carbohydrate ate, you, you ate, the faster you would run and the further you would run. And so I started practicing that in about 1973, 72, 73. And it, then certainly by 76, I mean, I was a devoted high carbohydrate eater and the thing i didn't i noticed but didn't understand was that i put on four kilograms at the time and i could only ever get my weight down if i ran about 100 100 miles a week or 160 kilometers a week and i found it very difficult to control my weight but i never asked why because i thought well that's that's just it you just designed that way and maybe you should run more so i would run more and i would lose a bit of weight uh-huh. but the minute i'd stop running the weight would come back again so i kept running and my running got progressively worse and by about 1990 it was so bad i was running so slowly in marathons i said well that's it i've lost interest and i would i continued to jog and train a bit but it was always hard work then i obviously i became more academic and did more research and wrote law of running so running wasn't my main focus and keeping fit wasn't my main focus and then when i'd finished writing waterlogged the very night that i finished it and i was going to send it off to the editors the next morning my brain woke me up in the middle of the night and said you must get up tomorrow morning at six o'clock and you must run five kilometers <laughs> on the flat mm-hmm. and you must run every day for the rest of your life so because i listened to my brain i got up put on my garmin to measure my speed and to track my distance and off i was out the front door along this very flat track which goes pretty flat goes a bit downhill for about two kilometers and then at two and a half kilometers it ret- starts returning home and it comes up a tiny little hill that i mean it was a tiny little hill and i reached the top of this little tiny hill and my heart rate was 100 50. I was barely moving and I said, there's something wrong here. I better sort myself out. Mm-hmm. And I struggled home. And then when I got home, I fortunately opened my emails and there it said, lose six kilograms in six weeks without hunger. And I said, but that's impossible. I'm a doctor. I know you can't lose weight without hunger. So anyway, I then noticed that the people who wrote the book called The New Atkins for the New You were three really good scientists who I respected and had I'd read their work. So I decided, well, they can't be making it up. I must go and discover see what their book's all about so i went and bought the book the very that very morning brought it home and read it and that described the whole focus on low carbohydrates and the the physiology of low carbohydrate eating and i knew nothing about this absolutely nothing because i've been completely brainwashed Mm -hmm. as a physiologist or as a medical doctor so anyway i decided that's it i'm stopping eating carbohydrates so i did and in the next eight weeks i lost 11 kilograms and in three months my running had dramatically improved and i was really loving the running and enjoying getting up and running every day and enjoying it as I had 20, 30 years before. So that's how I got back into running. And then I started reading about the the low-carb paleo diets. And uh, I initially refused to acknowledge I was doing it because I knew what would happen, that I would be victimized by the (laughs) profession, which was exactly what's happened. So Mm -hmm. I've been absolutely demonized by the the nutritionists and dietitians in South Africa. And my own faculty of, of health sciences doesn't know what to make of me. Yeah. Because there are sen- there are senior professors writing that I've lost my mind. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> why, why are people so opposed to this idea? What is it? Because we've all been brainwashed by industry, uh, the grain industry, or because we think it's going to high fat is going to clog our arteries. What is it? And it seems like people are very passionate about one side or the other. Uh, indeed, I just discovered that nutrition and dietetics is a religion. Mm. You can't talk sense to these people, and so we had a major debate at my university where they. they they flew out a guy from the United States to put me in my place. I mean, that's clearly what it was all about. It wasn't a debate. It was to expose me. And it was so bad that, that they even released a press release from the sort of Center for Chronic Disease Prevention in South Africa. And it begins with the statement that I've lost it, you know, 
saying that I'm doing huge damage to South Africa by telling them to eat a high-fat diet. Mm -hmm. And But nowhere do they focus on the facts. So in the debate, I presented five facts, which to me are irrefutable, and, and there's the evidence. And then they, the report of the meeting is that Dr. Noakes didn't pr present any science of any value. <laughs> that mm. was nonsense. Yeah. So I think it is, it is brainwashing, and it's because the problem with dietetics and nutrition, it starts in 1977 when the, with the U.S. dietary goals. Mm -hmm. And if you ask a dietitian, so tell me, you know, where does this idea to eat lots of carbohydrate, where's the science? No, in 1977, it was handed down from heaven in a tablet, and that's it. And there was no, there's no history beforehand. So if you ask them, tell us about before 1977, what did people eat, and go back to the paleo, the paleontology, paleo anthropology, and all that. They're just not interested. Yeah. What did, what were people eating two million years ago? They're just absolutely not interested. Well, yeah, that that is very interesting that you that you. Uh, say that because every other issue in biology we look to our past and and uh, mm. use evolution as a template yet for nutrition it seems like we have the arrogance to think that we've discovered everything within the past 50 years and that we know what the best diet is for human beings that's precisely the problem and uh, and then of course this industry has completely brainwashed and the power of industry is remarkable and I only sort of got to visualize that when I reviewed when I wrote waterlogged and when I started digging behind behind the scenes to find why were these scientists doing this type of research and always finding the same thing. And then I found that those scientists had very close links to the sports drink industry and they had held very senior positions in major sports medicine organizations in America and elsewhere. And they controlled the editorial boards of most of the journals in the world. So there was only one message that was ever going to get out about sports drinks and what you should be drinking and why. And exactly the same, but much worse exists in nutrition, that the American Dietetics Association, just like the South African Dietetics Association and the and the South African Heart Foundation are utterly dependent on industry mm -hmm. and all the bad industries to keep them going. And and no one sees this and doesn't don't see the conflict of interest. And and it's astonishing how naive the scientists are that, oh, I'm not influenced. The fact that I accept money from the South African Sugar Association doesn't make make my opinion different. And it doesn't doesn't prevent me from seeing that sugar is or is not healthy. And the reality is, once you accept that money, you are, you've are you sold out and you, unfortunately, will only see the good in the products that are funding you. Now, you, you've talked a little bit about how this higher fat paleo style diet has, you know, you lost weight seemingly effortlessly. and But that's an experiment of one. Do you know of any other people who have tried this? Have you advised athletes on, on this type of diet? I, I reckon, I started two and a half years ago. I reckon I must have received about a thousand letters, emails, phone calls, Twitters from people saying, thank you for saving my life. Wow. And I've collected most of them, but but it's remarkable. And I, literally every day I receive another one. And yesterday's one was just typical. This guy, he he's from Cape Town, from my city, and he travels to another, he travels to Zimbabwe and he can't fit in the seat. <laughs> so, <laughs> and when he arrives in Zimbabwe, the people are shocked to see how fat he is. And he's only 35, you see. So when he flies back, the same story, he can't sit, he can hardly sit in the seat and the person next to him pulls out her, her notebook and starts writing this is the worst flight I've ever been on because I'm sitting next to this fat man 
and I can't fit in my seat, you see. So what happens is he arrives in Cape Town, he goes straight to the doctor, and the doctor weighs him and weighs him at 160 kilograms, which is which is uh, many, many pounds, 320 at least pounds, maybe 340, so, but anyway, 160 kilograms. And she says, you're on death's door, your blood pressure's high, you've got high glucose, you've got diabetes and so on. I must send you straight to the nutritionist and you must go on high blood pressure medication. So he says, no, give me six months. And that night he goes on the internet and he sees something that I've written. He says, okay, Dr. Noakes can do it, I can do it. Mm. So he goes on the diet and after eight months, he's lost 80 kilograms, 80 kilograms. And he writes to me and he says, that's 80, Dr. Noakes, 80 kilograms. And he now is weighs 80 kilograms from 160. And he's come down, as I said, in, in eight months. So there are many similar examples. I, I, every day I get one of those. And what happened in South Africa is, in fact, that this is the story is broken and it's called the Noakes diet. So the story is that if you go out to, to dinner and you don't, you order meat and veg and no bread or potatoes, they say, oh, we see you're eating the Noakes diet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, some people might say that and say, well, of course you're going to lose weight if you're, you're cutting the calories. Why? What's wrong with that story? You just, all you did was cut out yeah. carbohydrates. Why, why is your story a little bit different? And can you talk about the role of the brain in, in managing appetite and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Because, so you see, but please remember, and, and you, what we need to make a point is that for 33 years, I followed the prudent diet. Mm-hmm. I was one of the first in South Africa. In fact, I was one of the founders of the South African Heart Foundation. And we started in 1977, just when the dietary goals came out. And so I was a devoted person, avoiding all fat. And I remember I would go to bed at night and say, I ate no fat today. That's fantastic. <laughs> and all, all that happened to me was my health just deteriorated. It deteriorated to the point where I, in fact, do have type 2 diabetes. And I've no question that it's, I've got the family history. My father and my uncle died of, of both died of diabetes. So I've got the genetics, but I'm convinced that it was a high carbohydrate diet that took me over. And in fact, yesterday I was speaking to an Olympic, Olympic kayaker from Britain who had been to four Olympics. And the only person who's been to more Olympics than, than him is Steve Redgrave. And Steve Redgrave also has type 2 diabetes. And I asked him, because he's a medical doctor, this guy, I said, what do you think happened to Steve Redgrave? Where did he get his diabetes from? He said, I'm convinced it was all the carbohydrates that he was eating mm-hmm. all those years. And so so I ate this healthy diet and it just made me sick. And I would try to control my weight, but I couldn't because I was always hungry. And also I was eating addictively because I was addicted to potatoes and bread and bananas and sugary drinks. Mm-hmm. And so I would, which all of which I thought were healthy. But of course, the sugary drinks were pushing me into diabetes, plus a few other things. And it was only when I went on the high fat, high protein diet and completely cut the carbohydrates that my energy consumption went, it went down at least 40%. I mean, it's the little food I eat now is astonishing how little I eat compared to what I ate. And I'm absolutely never hungry. In fact, I now, I weigh myself every morning just to make sure that I'm eating enough. That's that's how, <laughs> how it is. I don't, I don't weigh myself to check, gee, I'm glad I'm losing weight. I weigh myself to make sure I ate enough the day before to maintain my weight mm-hmm. because uh, I'd be scared that I'm going to lose more weight. And so, and I, in fact, by now I've lost 44 pounds or 20 kilograms. So wow. from 101 grams, I'm down to 80, which is which is the weight at which I ran my best marathon in 1981 and is, is lighter than when I was rowing. So obviously I haven't quite got muscle I had when I was rowing, but I'm lighter now than I was when I was 21. Wow. And, I, and I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's the way we should be. Mm-hmm. But, but three years ago, if you told me in three years time, you'll be lighter than you were at 21, I would have said, well, that's impossible because I, 
it's not possible to to get back to the weight you were as a youngster. Okay. So it sounds like this diet has allowed you to trust your appetite, whereas before you were constantly hungry, but there's something about the paleo style and that allows you to reset your your uh, hemostat for hunger. Is that true? That's absolutely correct. Because now, because a couple of things I noticed. Firstly, you notice that your hunger goes. And, and what I've noticed more recently is I started taking medication for type 2 diabetes. I thought I could control it with diet. I couldn't. Mm. And and since I started using the medication, my glucose control is all, it's it's very, very good. It's not absolutely perfect as I'd like it, but it's probably better than 99% of people, even who don't have diabetes. And with that, my weight came down substantially again. Mm. So I think that your weight is tightly linked and your hunger is tightly linked to how, how well you control your blood glucose levels. So, so I've gotten my blood glucose control very much better than it was uh, six months ago. And my appetite has gone down even further. So originally I noticed the appetite goes, but now it's even less. And I literally now I'm hungry. If I'm hungry at all, it's once every 24 hours. And that's it. And I think that your metabolism is perfect when you only feel a little bit of hunger every 24 hours and you eat a meal, a substantive meal once every 24 hours. And I think that's how we designed to be. And, right. and certainly what worries me was the way I was, you know, oh, you've got to eat every three hours and it's got to be lots of carbohydrate. That's a way to disaster because you're just spiking your glucose and insulin. You're wearing out your pancreas and the glucose and the insulin, in my view, are driving a number of diseases which haven't yet been linked to the high carbohydrate diets, but which will be in due course. Okay. So, so the key difference then to summarize is that the paleo diet just takes your appetite away and, and now you start eating as you should be eating. Will this kind of diet work for everyone in every event? If, if someone's interested in this and they're, say, a sprinter or a middle distance runner, is this something they could try? You know, that's a great question. And I think I think the reality is that the people who've embraced it first were the slightly older people like myself and Mark Sisson and Peter Attia and Gary Torbs. Mm-hmm. And we were all probably in our 40s or 50s. I was in my 60s when I discovered it. I think they discovered a lot earlier than me. But one of the keys was they were all athletes and they noticed they were putting on weight and becoming unathletic and they couldn't control it. And I think they couldn't control it because like me, they, they what I call insulin resistant or carbohydrate intolerant. And for us, it's absolutely essential. And as soon as we cut the carbs, we lose weight and our metabolism normalizes. And that's why we have this huge benefits. If, however, you are 21 years old and you're incredibly lean, for example, the world's greatest Kenyan runners, and I suspect that they're so carbohydrate tolerant, it doesn't matter what they eat, they won't get fat. But if you're slightly less carbohydrate tolerant, so you're also young, but instead of weighing, let's say, the 71 kilograms that you want to be weighing, you're weighing a few more. Uh, 74 or 75, and that's not going to allow you to be the champion athlete that you want to be, then then going on a high fat diet is going to help your performance. So I think that there's a very fine dividing line. And people write to me and say, you know, I am young. I don't think I'm really carbohydrate intolerant, but I've lost three kilograms and my performance have gone up. So I think that's the first point. If you're struggling to control your weight, this diet would probably help your performance at any distance. But on the other hand, if you if weight is not an issue and you can eat all the carbohydrate you like, I, I would suspect you're not going to benefit as much, at least at 
short distances. Mm. But once you go to the longer distances, I, I can't see why everyone wouldn't benefit. Okay. Do we have any evidence about what the 800-meter world record was eating? Uh, the, the Kenyan from the Maasai tribe? I think his name is yeah. David Rudisha. Yeah. I, well, David being a Maasai, of course, it comes from a completely carnivorous group. They don't eat any vegetables. Uh -huh. So they just eat cows and, the, and cows and cow milk and blood. So they're completely high-fat, high-protein. And they were the first study, of course, was made in the 1960s when it was said that saturated fat was killing us. George mm. Mann went straight over there and looked at the Maasai and found them to be incredibly healthy and mm -hmm. to be, in fact, the dominant, the dominant tribe in Kenya. They were, they were always dominating everyone else. And so he said he couldn't believe that fat had anything to do with heart disease risk and so on. Okay. So I don't know what David was eating, but I did notice he was a very powerfully well-built man yeah. with perfect teeth, which is also <laughs> the, the other feature of, a, of people who are not eating much carbohydrate. Yeah, that's interesting. I've noticed that too since I've gone on this diet. I don't have any buildup on my teeth. Have you noticed other things besides the weight loss? A number of things. And I've, I was I had irritable bowel syndrome for, for 63 years and assumed that that's normal or 61 years. I assumed it was normal. Right. And I got rid of that within a few weeks. But what was really interesting, I had a continual rhinitis, a runny nose, and which and then I would get an asthma, post-exercise asthma on occasion, and it would go to bronchitis. And it was the only serious illness I ever had because I had to treat it with steroids. And uh, it was amazing. I have not had one attack. I used to get an attack like that every three months. And I haven't had an attack for three for two and a half years. I used to have headaches once a week. They've completely gone. I've not had a headache in two and a quarter years. I've stopped using glasses. Wow. And, uh, I, which, and which I've also read is a, a common feature for, for some people. Yeah. So and my energy levels just went through the roof. So those were some of the obvious features. And then, of course, my running improved dramatically. I've noticed the same thing. My energy level is better. Um, my my running is better. I don't have IBS anymore. It's it's so strange. Why didn't we know about this diet earlier? I feel like, why is it <laughs> taking so long, you know? <laughs> well, you, you might want to read a book called The Meat Fix, which is which I just saw advertised. I bought it and it's written by a guy from the north of England. And my parents are from the north of England. Mm -hmm. And so I had, you know, had a connection. And, and basically, I was brought up also eating bacon and eggs for breakfast and lots of uh, animal viscera, for example, liver and pancreas and brains and so on. And that's what we were fed until 1977. And then I became so clever that I started eating cereals and grains. But but he describes how in the 80s, because he was a hippie, he decided that he was never going to eat meat again. And he became vegetarian. And he then he developed this explosive irritable bowel syndrome. And it was so bad that he had to know exactly where every toilet was every hour, anywhere he was because of the risk of explosive diarrhea. Uh -huh. and, and and two of the two of the professors who I've helped said exactly the same. The one guy said he would have to go home once a week because he had such bad IBS and he was he had been treated for 40 years by the leading gastroenterologist in South Africa. The other guy was a colleague, head of professor of public health at the University of Cape Town. He said he could not schedule a meeting in the afternoon because his gut would be worrying him so much he couldn't concentrate. And it, to come back to the, to the book by the meat fix, so the guy eventually starts eating meat and within a week he's cured. And he says, now how was it possible for 20 years not one person, not one doctor he consulted ever said, well, maybe it's your diet that's the problem. And he said, it's unbelievable that, that they don't recognize this as a, yeah. as a factor causing the disease. Yeah. What do you say to people who are pr medical professionals and they're encountering, encountering resistance from colleagues about prescribing a higher fat paleo style diet to some of their patients? I know one uh, physician who says, you know, if I if I talk like this to my patients, I, I'd be seen as a quack. Well, how, you've overcome yeah. some of that. So how what, what's your advice? for that? Well, the only reason I 
I overcame it was because the, in the general public did it and they discovered it works. And that's the key because it works for so many people that you suddenly get a large support base of people supporting you. But within my own profession, the only people who support me are those who, who changed. But I was really had an interesting discussion with a psychologist two days ago. And she said, a lot of the criticism you take is because people you know, don't like your profile anyway. So that's, mm. that's a good reason to attack you. But she said, but unfortunately for them, as you get older and you find that the traditional diet doesn't work, you have to change. And then they're going to realize that you were right all along. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's my point. The people who get away with it and continue to eat the so-called prudent diet are, are in the minority. And as they go older, they become a smaller and smaller minority. Okay. And, and, and fortunately, we have we have the internet and we have Twitter. And, and that is a game changer because this diet, it's a game changer for medicine. And, and I like to say that in 15 years' time, medicine will be totally different than it is today. There's a real risk that some of it will have become irrelevant. By that, I mean, if you can't produce cures for your patients, they will go on the internet and they will find the curative people, the cur- people who are producing cures, and they will consult with them. And it's, for example, very interesting that that guy who lost 80 kilograms, when his doctor said, you must do this, that, and the other, he said, no, I'm going first on the internet. Then I'll, then I'll talk to you. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and that's what's going to happen. That, and I tell my students, the medical students, that every generation of students is taught one massive fib or lie. And I said, I don't know what the lie is that you're being taught. I suspect it's nutrition. You may be told another few. But the point is that in 15 years' time, that lie will have been exposed. And if it's the core of your teaching and your understanding and the way you practice medicine, you're in real trouble because you don't have a fallback. And in a sense, that's what happened in dietetics. They have no fallback. They only know how to prescribe carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. They have no other fallback. And so medicine is going to change dramatically. And the only doctors who are going to be in business in 15 years' time are those who ask the first question they ask the patient is, so tell me what you eat. Because I know that 80% of all illness is related directly to what you eat. Wow. And I'd never, never taught that. And two and a half years ago, I would have said that's preposterous. But from my own experiences and now reading the literature, it's very clear that that's the case. So Tim, tell me a little bit about what your daily food intake is like. What What's on your plate? Some people might be thinking, well, what am I supposed to do? Just go out and eat some lard? I mean, what kind of things are you eating? <laughs> well, I started off uh, on a high pro. Firstly, when you go on this diet, you have to go cold turkey in my view. You just got to cut the carbs. And now two and a half years later, it's really funny because the psychologist I spoke to you has a test which tells you whether, you, whether you've got a sugar dependence or whether you've got a carbohydrate dependence. And it's an amazing test because it's all done on subliminal messaging. And it's beyond my understanding. And you wouldn't know, have a clue what, they, what they're testing when you do the test. So I just did half the test. And afterwards, I scored negative on a carbohydrate addiction. She said, you're absolutely highly emotionally intolerant of carbohydrates. Hmm. So in two and a half years, I've built up this absolute phobia about carbohydrates. I will not eat them. Mm-hmm. But it takes time to get to that. So when I started, I went on a very simple diet. I said, listen, I'm just going to lose weight and stop eating carbohydrates and try and get over my sugar addiction. So I just ate dairy produce, particularly cheese. I ate chicken, fish, and a thing we call biltong or jerky. The biltong in South Africa is really good. It's dried meat. And I mean, all, all South Africans are brought up on, on biltong. And so it's it's a real delicacy. So I just ate that for, for two months. And by which time I'd lost my 11 kilograms and was feeling pretty good. So now I thought, okay, now we can sort of start eating the veg and ha- have adding a little bit of carbohydrate. So, but now to, to but now I'm, so then I discovered that I was eating too much protein, hmm. which is because it's very easy to eat lots of protein. It's not easy to eat lots of fat. And I discovered my glucose control was not ideal. So I decided I must cut 
cut the protein and increase the fat consumption. And I did that, started about three months ago, and that I lost another five kilograms as a consequence of that. And wow. so now what I do is for breakfast, I would have some form of bacon, sorry, some form of eggs and occasionally bacon or salmon or, uh, or yogurt and some berries. But it'll be a very high fat meal. And that will literally take me through till four o'clock in the afternoon. Hmm. And if I'm at all hungry at lunch, I might have a handful of macadamia nuts and almonds and maybe a bit more cheese. And that'll take me through to four o'clock. Maybe I'll have a snack on again, some, some cheese or some nuts. And then I'll have dinner. And dinner will be usually fish and lots of vegetables and salads. But as you'll see, there's been no potatoes, no bread, no rice, no pasta, no di no sweets. I haven't had a sweet in two and a half years. I drink water, coffee, and tea. I've not had a sweet drink in two and a half years. I've not had a, a cake or a, a muffin or a scone. I've not had a dessert at dinner, and, and a sweet dessert. I've not had cakes for two and a half years. Wow. So that's, that's it. It's, it's really very simple it's vegetables very few fruits lots of lots of eggs lots of cheese and dairy lots of fish and, okay. and nuts and that that's about it and that it's 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 quite tedious uh, but but it's so effective that the the benefits far outweigh anything related to the tedium so for for dinner you have you're having uh fish like a salmon with some vegetables where's the healthy fat coming from because i think fish is pretty lean isn't it yeah well i salmon has quite a lot of fat in it i have avocado so i had a full avocado tonight and salmon okay and and then i'll have i have raw milk there's one place in cape town where we can get raw milk, uh, which is unpasteurized and unprocessed, and it's just delicious, and it's full, full, full cream. Okay. And then the yogurt, and the eggs, and the and the nuts are very important. And olive oil, I'll add that to my to my salads, and mayonnaise, but ma mayonnaise made locally by ourselves, not bought. Um, and th those are the, the key drivers of the fat. Coconut oil is the other one that I need to mention. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that stuff. Is it important to do grass-fed? <laughs> yes, we we do. We go and search out the butcheries that only provide grass-fed beef, grass-fed cattle for our milk, and grass-fed chicken. And the, the taste is just totally different. Mm -hmm. I mean, the milk, the taste of the milk is just is absolutely different. And the eggs and the chickens, the, the pasture-fed chickens just taste like something, whereas the stuff bought from the supermarket is too terrible because I, I suspect it's all corn-fed. All right, Tim, let's, let's change topics a little bit. You recently wrote a book called Waterlogged, and I found that book absolutely fascinating. If there's runners out there listening to this, you need to go and buy that book. It's like Born to Run on Steroids, the first chapter, how he goes into the evolutionary history of how we became runners. Now, you say in that book that muscle cramps, heat stroke, all those things are not related to the amount of sodium, how much we're taking in during our run. Could you tell the story about Cynthia Lucerno and, and what you correct. found out as you, you researched this book? Well, I use Cynthia Lucerno as the best possible example of, of how everything went wrong. So she wasn't the first case that, that we described. We described a, a case 21 years before her. So just to make that point, in 1981, the very first case of water intoxication during a marathon was reported by us. And I always thought it was my responsibility to find out what caused the problem and then to write the definitive work, to do the definitive research and to the de definitive work because I had been the first to describe it. So that became a bit of a, a mission, but it only took me 10 years. And in 10 years, we knew that this condition was caused purely by overdrinking and had nothing to do with salt loss. 
losses. And we described that in literature and we thought, well, that's the end of problem. But unfortunately, the sports drink industry had another goal on their mind. And they weren't going to let this inconvenient science dominate because what they wanted was everyone, when they go to the gym, that you would start drinking the minute you started doing exercise. And to do that, they had to produce somehow some evidence that if you became dehydrated, you are at risk of ill health. And so they managed to get the scientists and brainwash everyone into the belief that there's this medical condition called dehydration. And there's not. If you run, you get thirsty, you drink. The dehydration causes the thirst, you drink, end of problem, end of story. That's it for dehydration. But they said that every medical condition that occurs in exercise is due to dehydration. And so we had to set out to disprove that or, or, or prove it or disprove it. And in the end, we did disprove it. So, and we'd published all this information, but it conflicted so absolutely with this industry-driven message that it didn't get out. And all the experts that were called in to testify, so to speak, were indirectly linked to the industry. And so they were just giving out industry's message without realizing it. Yeah. So Cynthia Lechero's story is, is the great tragedy because here's a young lady. It's her second marathon. She's just qualified with her PhD. She's from Ecuador. She's running the Boston Marathon. Her parents come from Ecuador to see her finish. They've listened to her give her PhD dissertation earlier in the week, and they're going to stay around for, to, in Boston to see her run the race. So they're waiting at the finish. Unfortunately, at 35 kilometers at roughly 22 miles or so, she becomes confused and she's taken by ambulance to hospital and she dies that day or the next day. And she dies of this water intoxication. And when we analyze what happened, she had drank 1.2 liters or 40 ounces of fluid every hour that she ran. Mm -hmm. On that day, the temperature was 50 degrees Fahrenheit. It was overcast and there was a wind blowing. The last thing she was going to die from was heat stroke on that day. She probably would have got cold, if anything, running under those conditions. But she'd been told she had to drink 40 ounces. And we know that her sweat rate was probably a quarter of that. So she was taking in much more than she was sweating. So she retained the water, developed water intoxication, her brain swells, and tragically that causes her to stop breathing in hospital. And as a consequence, she dies. Mm. And it was, it's so tragic because I predicted already in 93 that this was going to happen when the first death occurred in an American marathon runner in the Valley of the Giants Marathon in California. A young lady died in that race and it, it never reached the, the public eye. And the doctor who looked after her wrote to me and told me about it. He wasn't there on the race day. He wanted to know what had happened and he sent me the medical literature. And the reality was she collapsed with water intoxication. The doctors didn't know what it was. They gave her fluids and that made her condition worse of course and ultimately she died mm. so the, the great tragedy was that that these conditions this condition is completely man-induced and we induced it by industry saying that we had to drink lots to prevent dehydration and the women who run slowly at the back of the races and who drink lots because they're listening to what they're told to do are the ones who run into trouble unfortunately yeah you know i kind of fell prey to this message too early in my running i i had always heard if a two percent weight loss will lead to a, a loss in performance well then I've got to make sure that I'm maximally hydrated at all times. And I never knew how damaging that could be and, and tragic, especially for this lady. What about when we're running and we're out there for a few hours and we see tons of sweat, uh, salt developing on our shirt and we might be getting muscle cramps? Isn't that evidence that we need more sodium? <laughs> yeah, that's another great question. The Again, thank goodness for an American researcher in the Second World War uh, who worked out 
about Dr. Khan, Dr. Jerome Khan, he worked out that the salt that appears on your sweat is what your body's trying to get rid of. It's not that you're losing it in an uncontrolled way. So he was the first to show that there's this incredibly tight salt balance in your body. And normally you probably need, even when you're running a huge distances every day, you probably need between two or three grams per day. And most of us are taking between six and 10 grams a day. And if you're running a lot and you're taking in 10 grams a day, the easiest way for your body to get rid of it is in sweat. And so it appears on your on your shirt and in your sweat. And you then think, my goodness, sorry, what the industry has told you is if you are losing a lot of sweat, then you're in trouble. And if you're sorry, if you're losing a lot of salt in sweat, you're in trouble. And you've got to increase your salt intake. What they should be telling you is if your sweat contains salt to the extent that you can taste it, you are taking too much salt in your diet and you need to cut back on the salt. But unfortunately, that's not the message that's been got, that's been given to runners around the world. Now, in the book, you say that humans are the best hot weather hot weather runners in the world. Can you talk a little bit about how we evolved our thirst mechanism and why we're designed for running in hot weather? Indeed. So if you come to Africa 3.5 million years ago and you came to the plains of Africa, either East Africa or South Africa in, in the, the northern parts of Southern Africa, uh, you would have found that the savanna was opening up and the savanna was full of mammals. And what happened was that the the, the early humans or sorry, early human ancestors, and they were the, called the Southern Ape or Australopithecus africanus. And this is a tiny little upright animal of about three foot tall, weighing about 30 kilograms, about 60 pounds or so. And these poor guys had to make a decision. They either get to stay in the forest, which was disappearing rapidly and remain vegetarians, or they had to find another source of food. And by chance, someone must have discovered that if they chased after antelope initially, they would catch them. Or if they scavenged the, the early animals as they're born, because they're very vulnerable then. And so they would have started eating meat at that stage. And ultimately, as they ate more meat, they got bigger and stronger and became better runners. And ultimately, were able to chase much bigger antelope for three or four hours. And to do that, you have to appreciate, of course, there was no water available once they started running. And because then you just chase these animals and you can't afford to stop and find water or else the animal will just disappear over the horizon. So our interpretation is that they, they learned to run without fluid and they would get their fluids when they killed the animal. They'd take the fluid from the gut and probably they'd drink blood. Mm. And that's when they would drink. And then they'd take the animal home at night and where their home was because their home was near water. So humans must have evolved as animals who did most of their drinking at night or early morning and not during the day. And in fact, that's exactly what you see today, that in military personnel, for example, who are studied, who are active during the day, most of their drinking is done with their meals and most of it is at night. So we we make good any fluid deficit we have, not when we're running or during exercise or not immediately after, but only when we eat and particularly in the evening meal. So that's how we think we evolved as the runners. Mm -hmm. Now we had to be able to run in the heat because the mammals can't thermoregulate. They don't sweat. They pant. And that's a much less effective way of controlling your body temperature. But we are sweaters and therefore we can lower our body temperature, maintain a much lower body temperature, even in extreme heat, provided it's dry heat. If it's humid, then it's a problem. But in the African savannah, it's not. It's dry heat. So we could run for four hours, lose lots of water, become severely dehydrated, and it had no impact on us because we were keeping our body temperature low and therefore able to keep running after these antelope. Eventually, the antelope after four or five hours would overheat and become paralyzed. And then early humans could kill it with their bare hands hmm. because we only got spears about half a million years ago. So for at least two million years, we were killing animals with our bare hands. 
And you can only do that if the animal is absolutely paralyzed from being so hot. So that's the theory of how we developed as runners. We became much bigger, more proficient runners. But the key was we had to be able to run in the heat. Mm-hmm. And when the sports drink industry came along, they had to say the opposite, that we were very badly designed. We can't run in the heat without drinking their product to profu- in profuse quantities. Sadly, when you drink in profuse quantities, because we're so well designed to conserve water, then you can get water intoxication. Yeah, it's strange. Every other creature on earth uses thirst as a mechanism to stay hydrated, but somehow we've been convinced we need to drink ahead of thirst and outsmart our own brain. Looking back on it now, seems like a strange idea, but that's something that I did for many years is I would go for a longer run. I would always have water bottles planted and and salt tablets and things like that. After reading your book, it's kind of liberating because I don't have to carry as much stuff with me when I go running. That's right. And um, the, the, the other liberating point is once you realize you don't need to take carbohydrates, during exercise yeah. you liberate yourself of that as well mm-hmm. and it's astonishing now that getting feedback from people who are doing the Ironman with, with just taking a few nuts and some oils or a bit of uh, jerky or biltong or pemmican and they do they eat hardly at all and just as I'm mentioning that I must say that the, the greatest female triathlete of all time Paula Newby Fraser was in fact from Zimbabwe and I helped her and she told me or at least this is how she interpreted that in 1984 I told her she must fat adapt and she mustn't eat carbohydrates and I didn't actually say that but that's what she remembered and she was a a paleo athlete all her life and she said you know in the Ironman and she won eight of them sorry eight of the Kona Hawaiian Ironman and 28 total Ironman races she said I almost ate nothing during those races and Mm. and that's the way it should be if your metabolism is perfect you shouldn't need to eat more than every six hours so how much would you advise someone to eat or drink during training and racing based on the research that you've done well as far as drinking goes I mean, I think you just drink to thirst. And, and generally, that will come out at about 20 ounces an hour. Most people will get by on 20 ounces per hour. Um, there are some who will take maybe 30 ounces an hour, but but the that's, you know, that's already pushing it. So we find that most people drink 10 to 20 ounces per hour. As far as eating goes, my view is the following, that, that you eat in a race as you eat during your day, daily living. And if you're a carbohydrate addict, you will have to eat every hour or two because that's what you'll expect. Your brain is still you where's the carbohydrate but if you're fat adapted what happens is you just look for the next meal and if so if you're going to do it as a 12-hour race well of course at six hours you, you you need some meal you need lunch so sit down and eat lunch <laughs> but, <laughs> but you don't have to every hour be eating something i know that's extreme but but that's the way i'm beginning to think i can't see any benefit if you're fat adapted of eating during the race because the because you've got all this fat in your body and it's going to provide everything you need so, you know, that's an extreme position. I always like to, to take extreme positions because then people go and test them and they find whether they're right or wrong. And if they're wrong, that's fine. We can adapt it. Mm-hmm. But but certainly, I've got lots of reports now of people who would only eat every two to three hours. If they're paleo athletes, they would only, they'd snack on something every two to three hours and that's it. Have you noticed since going paleo that you have to drink any less during exercise? That's something that I've noticed. And I don't know if that's just unique to me or or what. That's a that's an interesting question. I find I'm, I'm drinking obviously much more water because that's my main fluid now so i don't know if i'm actually drinking more or if i've just noticed it that i'm drinking more but uh but i'm I'm certainly really enjoying my water but i was always i always drank very very little during running and i I don't drink when i run now so but the longest i do a race of two hours and a few minutes and and i'll have one or two drinks during that race but that's it okay so i never was a big drinker and i'm just a smaller drinker now tim in the book you do a lot of research on heat stroke and whether that's 
related to hydration or not. And one thing I found, I was thinking to myself reading the book is how did you get all those runners to take rectal temperatures during their marathons? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was that was long before we now, of course, use uh, ingestible uh, ingestible tablets, and that makes it a lot easier. Okay, and so we we've got some really good data, fantastic data now on on people exercising at forty three degrees centigrade, which is which is really really hot. So we have some mili- data from military personnel in the South African Army on the on the desert, working out in the desert, and they have to race twenty five kilometers at forty three degrees centigrade, which don't even tell me if it's one hundred and twenty degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know, but it's kind of up there. That's how hot it is. And we have some amazing data. And the point is that their temperatures never get very high because the brain regulates your your exercise intensity to make sure your body temperature doesn't rise too high. But the early studies, we we just told people it was good for them to have their temperature measured, <laughs> and so we did it. Yeah. And you found there was no relationship between the amount of hydration and their their temperatures, basically. That's right. The only relationship is to how fast they ran the last six kilometers of the race. That's so how fast you run tells you what your temperature is. And so the more recent data we haven't published it all as yet shows that you get your highest temperatures after five k's. Then then it's slightly less after ten or twenty one, forty two. And once you do ultra marathons, your temperature is relatively low at the end because you're running so slowly relative to what your top speed. Mm. And then it doesn't matter what your level of dehydration is. It's it's purely how fast you've been running in the last few kilometers before your temperature was measured. So it sounds like you're saying that we can really rely on our own built-in mechanisms for regulating how much we eat and drink. And that that's pretty amazing to me that, that uh, just listening to your body is really turns out to be the best way to go. Absolutely. And, and the point is, and I make this point in, in Waterlogged, is that he, we're all the offspring of survivors. You know, if our parents hadn't survived at the time of our birth, we wouldn't be here. Sorry, if they hadn't survived long enough to procreate, we wouldn't be here. And you go back millions and millions and millions of years. So everyone on earth today is a survivor. And we only got here to be survivors is because we're not designed for this catastrophic failure. We are designed to be tightly regulated in everything that we do in terms of eating and drinking and sleeping, etc. It's tightly regulated. Mm. And we are hugely successful mammals. And we're hugely successful because because we've got this tight controls in our archaic part of our brain. And we don't have to think about how we get there and how much we need to eat and how much we need to drink or how fast we have to run in a marathon. If you're clever enough, the brain will get you there to the finish in the best possible time. Mm-hmm. Once you try to override these things, as Cynthia Chera did, you get into trouble. So you, you hinted there at the next topic that I wanted to get into. Um, you say the brain regulates um, our intensity of exercise as we're starting to heat up. How does the brain regulate, regulate fatigue and how how are your ideas different than the, some of the prevailing ideas out there? Yeah, when I started uh, in my physiology, we were taught that there were two reasons for fatigue. The one was that your muscles produced lactic acid during high-intensity exercise, and the lactic acid poisoned the muscles and you had to stop. And the other theory was that in prolonged exercise, you ran out of glycogen, the carbohydrate in the muscle, and as a consequence, you had to stop. Now, both of those models have to be wrong. Uh, be- and how do we know that? Because that's a catastrophe model, and it's also a brainless model. So if that was true, you would not need any symptoms of discomfort because just like you you just start running and when you run out of petrol, you just stop. So there's no point in warning you when you're going to run out of petrol because then you do about it. It's just going to happen. And so we began to realize that the sensation that fatigue is merely a sensation. And we integrated that into our model and realized that fatigue is a sensation that regulates your performance to make sure you don't overdo it so that you don't have a catastrophe. And as a consequence, you're arrive at the finish of the race in the best health you possibly
possibly can. So what our model says is that the brain exists to make sure that you don't have a catastrophic failure. And it uses the sensations of fatigue to regulate your performance. So we've now done numerous studies showing that if we put people in the heat, from the first pedal stroke, they go slower. They know, the brain knows it's too hot. And in addition, not only that, but their sensation of discomfort are accelerated in the heat. So they feel uncomfortable and they just don't want to exercise as hard. And so not only does the brain downregulate your performance, so you're producing less heat less quickly, it upregulates your discomfort so that you can't pedal harder and faster and generate more heat. So the system works absolutely perfectly as, as one would predict if the brain was in control. So what happens then is that before you start any exercise bout, the brain summarizes what's going to happen, how long you're going to exercise for, and then it sets a target pace that is acceptable for you under your conditions, under the environmental conditions, to finish the race without hurting yourself. Mm. And it tries to give you that information during the race. If you listen to the the information, you have a perfect race. If you don't, you run too fast early on, you ignore the brain telling you, hold on, things are not right, you're going too fast, slow down. And then eventually the brain says, fine, you've overdone it, you've now got to slow down. Mm. And then you slow down and you can't speed up any further. So that's, in our view, in a simple explanation how the brain works during exercise. So it sounds like you're saying the old model uh, believes that you basically run as hard as you can until the muscles get poisoned with lactic acid and give out. But your your model says, wait, the brain is much smarter than that, and it's going to keep you from getting to that point where where you can't exercise any farther. It's going to stop you far before that. Is that correct? That's correct. It's going to set the pace so that the pace is always slower and, and enough to get you to the finish. Okay. And of course, if it's a 5K race, it's going to be a lot faster than if it's a 50K race. You're going to be running slower from the start. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's the question people could never explain to me. So if lactic acid is the regulator, why do you run slower in a 50K race? When you're running slower, your lactate will be lower, so you should be running faster. (laughs) It It doesn't make sense. You also talked a little bit about how when you were measuring VO2 max, you never found that plateau. And that was one of the things that that kind of hinted that maybe the model wasn't correct. That's correct. And we have to go back to the 1980s when we were doing this research. And when we tried, we knew that if you wanted to publish work in those days, you had to say, we saw the plateau phenomenon in 100% of patients, or else they said, well, you didn't measure the plateau. So therefore, it's not a VO2 max. And it's funny that the scientists at that date were so, they were so poor, they had their own religion, that if you didn't show it, there was a VO, the most important thing in exercise science was to prove that you could measure a VO2 max plateau. I mean, I think there are more important things in life than that. (laughs) So so we could never find this plateau. And so we would write that, let's say we found plateau in 20% of the subjects. And that we continued to write that. And eventually the papers got accepted. And eventually that we made the breakthrough. And in 1996, I was asked to give the J.B. Wolf lecture uh, at the American College of Sports Medicine. It's a a very prestigious lecture. And and I wasn't, I'm not a specialist, I'm a generalist. And so I knew how could everyone else who'd given the J.B. Wolf lecture is a specialist in one area, but I'm a generalist. So I, I said for my talk, I'm going to talk about challenging beliefs, all the things that I think are wrong about exercise physiology. And I focused specifically on this, the lactate and the VO2 max and the plateau phenomenon. And then I got the insight one evening, and it was the following that I've been working with with heart disease patients for, for 10 or 15 years, and not one of them has ever run into trouble during exercise. And we've had them run marathons and so on. Now, that doesn't make sense. And I suddenly realized, well, maybe the brain's making sure they don't get into trouble. And similarly, people climb Mount Everest, and of course, some die, but the majority don't. And similarly, millions of people run in hot marathons every year, but very few die. So I concluded that there must be 
pure brain regulating the homeostasis and that the brain must be the key regulator in performance. Mm. And I think then I was the first person in 1996 to say that the catastrophe model can't work because it doesn't it doesn't happen in nature. Mm-hmm. We seem to have this well-controlled system. So that's the way we got from the VO2 max plateau to the idea that the, the brain regulates the system and doesn't allow catastrophe to happen. Is the same true for sprinting and high-intensity exercise? That That's a great question because my, my most recent PhD and my students just writing up his PhD, when he came to me, I said, I want you to quantify exactly how tired muscles get during exercise. I don't, I'm not telling you how to do it. All I know is you must stimulate the muscle during exercise and just go out and do it. And uh, and so he did, and he, he became an expert in stimulating muscle during exercise, whereas everyone else who had done studies measures muscles after exercise. So they allow you to do the exercise, and then they stimulate the muscle afterwards. And they may start measuring the muscle only two minutes after they finished or five minutes or whatever. And what he was able to show was within four minutes of exercise, the function of muscle has deteriorated. And I, I use that word incorrectly because it's not deteriorated. It has changed. And in arm experiments, more than if you went and run for 24 hours. So within four minutes, we can produce fatigue in the muscle more than happens in a 24-hour running race Mm. as measured by the same techniques. So what we now know or think or propose is that fatigue of the muscle, in other words, the weakness that develops during exercise is a completely regulated process. And we even think we know what biochemical processes there are. And they're not because lactic acid builds up and poisons the muscles, not at all. They are mechanisms that are used by heart and by intestine and arteries, the muscles of those organs for for a different function. In skeletal muscle, they use the same controls to slow the rate of contraction down and to reduce the power of the muscle contraction. We call that fatigue. It's not. It's a regulated process, which in some ways helping the muscle function better if it has to contract for a prolonged period. Mm. So what we think now is that if the muscle didn't get tired in a regulated way, something else would happen and maybe it would tear or it would become too powerful or something. And what we find then is that during exercise, there's this progressive slowing of contraction speed and slowing of power production. And we've also in the most recent paper showed that it's it's continuous regardless of what race you do, what length it is. And if you go fast, within 5Ks, you produce the same fatigue at 5Ks as you would at the end of a 100K race. But the level of fatigue is the same. Mm. But you get there very quickly in a 5K and you take a long time to get there in a 100K race. Mm. And it's, it's almost as if each contraction leaves something behind that makes the next contraction slightly weaker. Of course, it's so tiny you wouldn't notice it. Mm. And it's only that it's after it's been going for a long time that, that it becomes observable. Now, on top of that, you have the brain, which says, okay, fine, I don't mind the muscles getting fever, fibers are getting weaker. That's okay. All I'll do is activate more fibers. And that's in some way how you compensate and why you don't slow down, even though your muscles are getting weaker. You just recruit more muscle. But there's a restriction on that. You can't recruit all your muscle fibers. And in a marathon, at the end, you're probably only using 35 to 40% of your muscle mass anyway. Mm. So though you've used 100% at some time during the race, by the time you reach the finish, you're, you're using 35% of the fibers. And all those fibers will be contracting less powerfully than they were at the start. So your performance has gone down. Yeah, that's something that uh, Matt Fitzgerald talks about in his books, uh, Brain Training, which you wrote the forward mm. to. Throughout the book, he kind of says, if you can get your muscles to fire more efficiently and recruit more muscle fibers, that's somehow going to help you in endurance in endurance sports. Do you agree with that? Well, that's kind of an assumption on the basis of, of what we find. And, and it sounds logical, but the reality 
is the brain doesn't do that as well as it could. And so you would think, well, why should there be a constraint? Why can't I recruit 100% of my muscles at the end of the marathon? Even if they're all tired, if I can recruit 100%, I'll still work, run a bit faster than if I only recruit 70%. And the reality is it doesn't happen. You you recruit a bit more, but you don't recruit very much more. So yes, I think the, the idea is right. Mm-hmm. And I do suspect that the best runners do recruit more than the less good runners. But the reality is there's still a brain control that will limit how much how much you can recruit. And training clearly doesn't overcome that because even the great Kenyans setting world records in the marathon, I'll bet they can't recruit more than 45 or 50 percent of their muscles at the end of the race. But, but if you could just increase it by one percent, that might have a, a big impact, would you say? That, that's correct. You're mm. absolutely right. One percent would give you a few minutes improvement on mm. your marathon time. Did your training change because of your thinking about how the brain regulates exercise? Well, well, unfortunately, it happened far too late for me. But what it did, I now find it much easier to race because I honestly don't have the same discomfort and sensations of fatigue. And it's because I now negate them because I say, well, I'm not interested in you just making noise. Shut up. <laughs> I'm enjoying this run. <laughs> don't, don't, don't think. Well, now I know it's cowardice, you see. He says, if I've got these sensations of fatigue, I'm being a coward. So I tell myself, stop being a coward and stop listening to that discomfort. You haven't got any discomfort. Just run faster. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. It reminds me of Herb Elliott's coach. And he said, it's it's only pain. Run faster. Mm. And, and that's, the, that's the reality. It's You generate the discomfort in your brain. You don't have to have that discomfort. You can reduce it. Yeah, you talk about the person who comes in second in a marathon. If they're just a second behind, it's because their brain, they were basically weren't tough enough to uh, to take first because obviously they're still alive. No, that's correct. Yeah, and that and that I I can't see any contrary argument to that. I know a lot of people get angry about that. Mm. They say no one chooses to come second, but the reality is you do. And and we work with teams as well. And and I'm convinced that teams choose to come second. That that the whole point of sport is that the subconscious of the winner must control the brain, the subconscious brain of the guy who comes second, and it must convince the guy coming second that it's too much effort to try and come first. So just accept coming second as good enough. And it doesn't matter whether it's a football game or if it's a running marathon or whatever. I, I really believe that's the basis of, of sporting performance is that the, the difference is not biological. It's not physiological. It's purely in belief systems and, and psychology and motivation. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that you really have to work on when you deal with the very best athletes in the world. Although the great coaches spend a lot of time preparing them, their skills and their fitness, at the end of the day, the athlete better believe in the coach and the coach better be telling the athlete they're going to win. Mm. And as long as they both believe it, then it's going to happen. You know, one thing I've been thinking about as ever since I read Lore of Running in high school is if training is about teaching your brain how to regulate exercise better, why do we spend so much time as endurance athletes train, training at a slower pace? Why don't we do more of our running at a faster pace? That's a great question. And the, the only thing I do know is if you try to do that, you'll break down. Mm. And so, and I have no explanation for that. I think that running is different because you have to support your body weight. And certainly in marathons, you have to get the, all the structures strong so that they can support your body weight for two or three or four hours. And I know when I was training for ultra marathons, that was what we were doing the long, slow running for, was just to be out there getting the system adapted for these prolonged exercise bouts. Okay. But I absolutely agree that, that you know, to get, to get faster, you have to do fast training. But there's a, for some reason, you can't do too much of it or you break down. And, and I found I've always done better by running lot long distances slowly with a tiny amount of speed work. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I push the speed work 
over a very minimal amount, I break down. And I think that that is genetic and I can't change it. And I mean, I have read some data that, that the best runners, when, when they take the less good runners and try to make them run at the same intensity as the best runners, they just break down. It's, so my view is your ability to sustain the workload is different in the best athletes compared to the less good athletes. Do you think and, that is? And, oh, and that's, I think that's, that's genetic and, and you can't overcome it. And to be great, you've got to have the physiology. Then you've got to have the ability to adapt to the training. Then you've got to have the motivation to do the training. Then you've got to have the right coach. And then you've got to have the self-belief that you're going to do it on the day. You know, one thing I've thought about when thinking about uh, this theory is that maybe people could run better on lower mileage as long as they include those very intense bouts of exercise. What do you think about that idea? Is maybe just yeah. doing one or two hard sessions a week enough? Or do you need to have high overall mileage as well? Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be dogmatic because I don't think I have the answer and I can only speak from my own experience. And what I think happens is you have 10 weeks to train really hard. And if you want to run an ultra marathon, you've got to have quite a lot of distance training. If you want to run fast, you've also have, got to have quite a lot of intense training. And it's combining the two that becomes difficult. And so the difference between ultra marathon to marathon running, in my view, was that in ultra marathons, you do more distance training and you don't do quite as much speed work. But so that would be the difference. But for the, for the marathon, probably once you go over about 120, 130 kilometers a week, for the average runner, they're probably wasting their time. And you need to do the 120 kilometers and then push the speed work up. It, mm. So that, that kind of seemed to me for the average runner, training between 80, that's 50 miles, and let's say 70 miles a week, seems to produce the optimum effect. But once you reach the 70 miles a week, you need to just then, if you can do that comfortably, then you need to do lots of speed work at the same time and that produced the optimum performance but i also found with myself that it, it took me six hard sessions and that was it i didn't improve much after that okay and, and that that's all it was it was six hard sessions and then i would be at a peak and if i tried to do seven or eight i'd be down on the other side tim you talk about how we were designed to be distance runners or that, at least that's how we we probably evolved what do you make of some of these studies coming out that showing that long distance exercise might be bad for your heart yeah i think that that's still speculative um I, I i've thought about it and it has concerned me and there was a time when i thought that you would dam you could damage your heart from long distance running and marathon running but the reality is that there are so many people who've been running lots of marathons and if it was an epidemic problem i think we would have seen it already and we would have seen more really hard firm data of damage heart damage in in athletes so i'm still skeptical i think that you have to be concerned and worried and that you look after yourself. And I say that because yesterday in our laboratories, we had a 33-year-old runner, cyclist, I should say, who a week before had cycled a 109-kilometer race in three hours and eight minutes. So he's pretty healthy. He developed ventricular fibrillation during a VO2 max test. Fortunately, oh. my colleagues got him round and he survived. But it took a big battle. But here's a guy. Now, had he been out cycling on that moment, he would be dead now. Mm -hmm. But he was fortunate. It happened in the laboratory and he could his life could be same but wow there were, how can you predict that a guy who's just done a race who has no symptoms who's part of a, of a test who's doing a clinical trial of training drops dead during a cycling belt you know that so there's, there's so much we don't know but but conversely if it is so easy to happen like it happened to him why doesn't it happen more often i'm i'm a little skeptical i think that had i, I don't think that you should run more than one marathon and one ultra marathon a year maximum and I, and i think if you keep that up for life, you're fine.
fine. Okay. But I, what happened in my career, we were running marathons every every month during the first part of the year, and we'd run two or three ultramarathons too much. I think people want to be running when they're 100. So whatever age you are, you're enjoying it so much, just keep it going till you're 100. Hmm. And don't do things that are stupid and make it likely you won't get to 100. You know, one confounding factor that I, that I was thinking about with these studies is that most of the distance athletes are probably on a high-carb diet. Is there evidence that a high-carb diet could be bad for your heart? Well, I, I suspect, you know, the high-carbohydrate obviously makes diabetes more prevalent. And, you know, I'm a typical example of someone who got the diabetes on a high-carbohydrate diet. And uh, these frequent glucose insulin spikes are tremendously damaging to your arteries and to other parts of the body. So, yes, I quite agree. And and it's not just the, the high-carb, it's the omega-6s in the vegetable oils that we eat. And what really concerns me about the diet is not just the sugar and the refined carbs, but also the omega-6s, the, the so-called vegetable oils, which are not vegetable oils, they're seed oils, which have been named vegetable oils as if it sounds healthy. You just can't afford to be eating vegetable oils. So people need to be eating the omega-3s, getting that from their fish and their avocado and the other sources of, of, of omega-3s. So the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio could be a key determinant of whether you're going to get ventricular fibrillation during exercise, or whether you're going to get damage, arterial damage or muscular myocardial damage during exercise. So I absolutely agree with you. I'd like to see what were the diets of those people and what was the omega-6 to omega-3 ratios in their blood and in their tissues. And if they've been eating lots of refined carbs and lots of omega-6s, then you'd expect them to run into damage despite the exercise. In fact, you'd expect it to be worse. And I'm coming out to the Western States this year, not to run it, <laughs> but to be present with Jeff Volek. And I know what they're studying. They're studying the athletes like Tim Olson who are eating high fat diets and studying their recovery because they think that a high carbohydrate diet is pro-inflammatory so that when you run the Western States, your inflammatory response is going to be much worse in those high people eating high carbohydrate diets than those who are eating high fat diets. And the inflammatory state is what is the disease state. So extend that out, do lots of ultramarathons with a big omega-6 meals, lots of refined carbohydrates, and you'd expect that you're in a chronic inflammatory state and you would expect medical problems as a consequence. And then it's not the exercise, it's the diet that's the problem. Interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing more, more of that uh, research coming out. You, you mentioned earlier that your running really came back as you went to a, a paleo-style diet. Do you have any gold races that you have coming up? Yes, I have a half marathon in next Saturday. So this is the race which, when it was an ultra marathon, I ran it, I ran it 15 times. And uh, I, I'm number 15. In other words, I was the 15th person to have run it 10 times. So I have the, in perpetuity, I have number 15. Mm. So I ran it 15 times, and then I would have run it many more. But by the time I ran it 15 times, my health was in such bad shape because of my high carbohydrate diet, which I didn't know about. But if I'd been on the paleo, I would have run that race many more times. Mm -hmm. So I know I race this for, for because it's just the memory of the great race. And of course, I'm only running half the course or less than half the course, but it's it's just a great day out. And 21K, I love it because I can still speed up at the end. Uh -huh. And with on the paleo diet, as you know very well, you just get faster and faster and faster. <laughs> so first K is terrible and the second K is a little bit better. The third K gets better. But by the time I hit 15 Ks, I'm really flying. So it's my best running of the year. So I really enjoy it. And my times are not great, but I am 63. And if I can run sub five minutes a K near the end, I'm very, then I feel like I'm absolutely flying and I feel like I'm 20 again. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Good luck yeah. in that race. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. And you know, it's funny because so I've run it 
this will be my third time. Yeah, this will this will be my third time now. The first time I ran it nicely. The second time I was so injured because I trained. I started just running fast. I was so enjoying my running. I just ran fast and did no slower running. And I just got perpetually injured. And I had a very bad year last year. Mm. So in December I said, Doctor Noakes, go back and look. You've always done best when you do slow distance running. So I've done more slow distance running, and I'm just now adding in a little bit of speed, and it's picking up nicely. So at least I won't be injured before the race, and I'm going to have a good race. Tim, what what's your most memorable? race that you've run well um the i've had many but i I absolutely no question the most memorable was the 1973 comrades marathon and and the story there was that i'd started running seriously on a consistent basis in 1971 and that was when i was in my third year of rowing and then i knew that i was going to finish running rowing in 1972 so in the off season every lunchtime i would go and run with my friend who was a medical doc medic we were both medical students but he was a really good runner and he was running 100 miles a week and he trained three three times a week. So at lunchtime, he'd come and run with me and we started running around a, the rugby field. And he said, right, when you can run for 30 minutes without stopping, I'll take you up on the mountain. And it took me th- quite a few months before I could run 30 minutes at seven minutes a mile. And then he took me up the mountain. So that was a great achievement to run seven minutes a mile for three miles or so. Mm. And when I ran the comrades two years later, I ran just over seven minutes a mile for 56 miles on this treacherous mountainous hills <laughs> wow and I, I i couldn't believe that was an, that was a miracle because i know how i struggled to run at seven minutes a mile when i started mm-hmm. and when i ran the comrades for 56 miles i would i just flew i just flew down that course and the only time i had a bit of discomfort was the last two miles or so and mm-hmm. it was just it was just magic and it was in the early days of running and there were probably two thousand runners in the race and i love running by myself so in the second half of the race, I probably saw 10 runners. And so I traveled, you know, traveled 26, 28 miles or so, 29 miles and saw 10 other runners. But then I'm, I was just flying and you're coming through to coming down towards Durban. And then you meet the crowds and they're just so supportive. And there's this amazing history of the race because it's been going for been going for 50 years then. And it's got these heroic people who've run the race. And it's just to be part of that was just amazing. Mm. And so I, I just say I touched heaven that day. And, yeah. and I was a different person. When I finished the race, I was a different person than when I started. And the comrades, and I think a marathon does that. The difference is in the comrades, you've got four hours where you face yourself. And every step, you just say, I just want to stop now. And that the pain is exquisite. <laughs> and it just... <laughs> just gets worse and you in a marathon you know if you're bad, feeling bad at halfway it's 21 k's to go off 13 miles in the comrades at, at at 50 at 60 kilometers you still got you still got about 30 kilometers to go so you've got 20 miles to go and it's it's you just feel like death and you know you can't stop and you know you're not going to slow down and you just fight with this the whole way and when you reach the end you really are your own hero and that's that's what happened to me that day mm. yeah sounds like an amazing race i'd love to run it someday it is. It's. Uh, it, it's. Well, Andy Burfoot, the header who writes for Runners World and used to be the editor, he said it's the greatest race in the world. Mm. And it. And the reason is because it's just so long and it's so big. The mountains are so big and the support is unbelievable. The. You know, it's like it's like having the cheering at the at the Super Bowl <laughs> uh, provided to you for the whole race. It's just amazing. Yeah, and there's some talk up that Haile Jebrselassie might run that race someday. That would be pretty fun to watch. Well, well, I I just hope he does because. 
Yeah, he'll shatter the record. <laughs> he will. He will take ten minutes off the record. And he'll just take it into the stratosphere. That um, that that would be amazing. Yeah. How about footwear, Tim? Uh, a lot of us are particular about footwear. What kind of shoes do you like to wear? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because I have it at work. I've collected all my running shoes over the years, and I've collected old running shoes. We're starting from 1936, I've got a pair of marathon running s- shoes, which are leather soles and leather mm-hmm. uppers. And then going through to the 1960s when the first Onitsuka Tigers come through. And the one we used then was called the Cub or the Marathon. And it was much like the minimalist shoes of today. And that was what came through in 1961. And then Nike starts producing shoes in the 60s. And they originally produced them in leather. And it's only the Japanese who've got the the nylon uppers. Because the, because of the Second World War, the Japanese didn't have access to, to, cow, to, uh, to leather. So they had to produce their own plastic or materials Mm -hmm. and then the first uh, nylon I should say nylon uppers come out with Nikes in the late 1960s early 70s then in 1972 Steve Prefontaine says we need more cushioning in the shoe (laughs) and you have the first cushion shoes and then of course it goes to air and so on and so forth and now it's come right back to to minimalist shoes and the the shoe that that I always loved there were two shoes that I loved was the the one was the Nike Mariah which was a racing shoe uh, which had a air sole plus lots of cushioning and it was a very very light shoe that was my favorite shoe and then there was a nike odyssey which was also very similar but was kind of the training version and the the nike pegasus trail today is essentially the same same shoe as the nike odyssey so i've been fortunate that's from 1980 to 2010 2013 i've been running in a shoe that's almost identical and and then the the trail pegasus trail to me is just a marvelous shoe and what i've done over the last year or two i have started running on the front of the foot which i didn't do before Mm -hmm. the problem was teaching an old dog new tricks i got severe achilles tendonitis last year but i finally got over it and now i can run on the front of my foot and then i saw newton shoes and i i ran in them and they're just bliss okay tragically i ran so much fast in them that i strained my calves and i said whoops i'm not going to do this and so i've had i've been trained in them for about two weeks and then i started getting running too fast so i've gone back to my my trail my pegasus trails but I will be going back to the to the Nike, sorry, to the Newtons. Okay. As I get stronger and as my calves get stronger, I will start using them more often, particularly for when I want when I want to feel like a youngster again and run fast. Because mm-hmm. it's interesting that I mean, when we were in the seventies, when we started training, you were we were all heel strikers and we were all told that's the way to run. And Frank Short, no, Northern Frank Short, Bill Rogers was the one guy who used to run on the front of the foot, and we all said, "Oh, he's never going to survive." And turns out he was right, and everyone else was wrong. <laughs> and the Kenyans and the Ethiopians came along and they showed us that the great runners run on the front of their foot. Yeah. And from my personal experience, it's just so much more comfortable running on the front of the foot. Mm-hmm. And it's so much easier to run that way that, that I would advise people to to run in in mild, moderately cushioned or mildly cushioned shoes and to start like that. The problem is once you've been training in cushioned shoes, it's very difficult to go to minimalist shoes. And I think it's you have to do it over four or five years, literally four or five years. And, and don't think it's going to happen over six months because you're just going to get injured. Yeah, that's one of the things I've found too. With I wear the Vibrams for a lot of my runs and it just makes running so much more fun and enjoyable. Yeah. And I'm sure that's the way we should be running. Mm-hmm. And and, I, and if you start running, I would advise start running barefoot or minimalist. But if you've been running like I have for 40 years, the, the, the change, and because my obviously my tissues are not young, the change has to be done very slowly. It took me, as I've said, it took me a year and a half to get running on the front of my foot. It's going to take me a year 
year and a half to get away from the trail, the trail Pegasus to, to a Newton shoe. So you've changed your mind on several important issues throughout the years. How do you keep an open mind and curiosity? Yeah, that that's a really interesting question because I think that I've, I've always been inquisitive and, and that's the one point. And the second point is I, I, be, I believe personal experience. So if someone comes and tells me, you know, this happened to me, then I want to know why. And so when the lady came and told me she developed water intoxication, I wanted to find why because we all knew you only became dehydrated during races. So how could someone develop water intoxication? It didn't make sense. So I'm always stimulated by everything that's that's unusual. And I'm always looking for, for anything that, that is uncommon or unexpected. And I have this gut feeling that, that once I start reading about something, my brain says, this is the way it is. This is the truth. And I trust myself to follow that. And after, for example, the, the, the paleo, going paleo, after about two or three months, I, I was convinced that was right, but I really hadn't read enough to know it was right. Similarly, when I came up with a central governor model, I, I sensed it was right, but I didn't have the proof. And I still knew there was a, a 10%, 20% chance that it could be completely wrong. And the same with the paleo diet, but I've now read so much and I outread everyone. I mean, I'm sitting here in my office in Cape Town, South Africa, in my, and I cannot, I can't even get to my desk because it is so full of the 70 books on the paleo diet that I've been reading. And that looks like about a thousand articles on paleo diets that I've been reading. And and that's what I do. And I read and I read and I read. And I don't discount anything unless there's a good reason to discount it. And I also teach my students that the evidence that it disagrees with your idea is the evidence you must look at most seriously. Not the stuff that supports you. Go and find the evidence that disagrees with you. And you have to be able to explain why it disagrees with you. And if you can't, you better think that the evidence that disagrees with you is more important than all the evidence that supports you. So I think that's, so I have this open mind and I'm always looking for for new ideas and I know that we don't have all the truth and my great hero running hero was George Sheehan and he taught me that 50% of what we teach is wrong but the trouble is we don't know which 50% it is mm. so I'm, I'm searching to find the 50% that's still true Tim one final question what who inspires you are there books or people that keep you inspired to keep thinking and keep learning Yes. Um, you know, there are, there are obviously many, many people. I think in running, the key person who inspired me was George Sheehan. And he was a cardiologist who became a sort of the, the key philosopher in running in the 1970s. So just when I was starting to run, he was writing the only medical column in any magazine anywhere in runners, and it happened to be in runners' world. So if I wanted to know about the medicine of running, I couldn't go to the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine. I went to runners' world and read what George Sheehan was writing. And then I met him in 1976 in New York at the New York City Marathon. And I took his book. He had one book called Dr. Sheehan on sports medicine or something. I think that's what it was. It was his athletic encyclopedia. And I mean, it was absolutely basic, but he signed it. And I mean, that then he became my God, obviously. And so I followed him and became very friendly with him. And then obviously I picked up some, some great friends and scientists and Ralph Paffenbarger from Stanford and Harvard, who was much older than me, but who ran the Western States and who was the first scientist who really showed that physical activity reduced your health risks and improved your probability you wouldn't have heart disease. He became a mentor as well. And then of the people who are still alive, George Brooks from the University of California at Berkeley was is just one of the great exercise scientists. He's never been recognized. He should have won major awards for, for the work he did. And he was the first guy to sort of start questioning lactic acid, uh, the lactic acid threshold and anaerobiosis. And he was very inspiring because he used hard science and really really good research 
to tackle these tough questions. And he was a mentor early on and, and was very helpful. So those are, are three people I can remember immediately. My own professor, Professor Lionel Ope, who taught, taught me physics, he taught me sports medicine and exercise science and, and cardiology. And one of the great cardiologists of all time, and certainly in South Africa, um, he was hugely inspirational. And, and he's a great friend, although it's his 80th birthday. And I'll be speaking at that next in a few weeks' time. He's like my father. He's a father. We have a father-son relationship. And although he disagrees with me on diet, he hopes I'm right. <laughs> so, so we have a great relationship. And then in my office, as I look, I have a collection of all the great the great writers and the great scientists. Sir William Osler from the great professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. Um, Ignaz Semmelweis, who wrote the, the text on how you have to wash your hands. And he worked out that if you didn't wash your hands, you would infect people. And he was ahead of Pasteur, but I've got Pasteur's book. I've got Darwin's books. I have got the collected works of Joseph Lister, who is the first person to talk about antisepsis and asepsis. So all these people are inspire me. And uh, in my office here, I feel that I, I have all these famous thinkers who are iconic, and I just hope that their ideas are still coming through their books into my head. Well, Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I found the discussion fascinating. Um, I love reading your works, and I look forward to reading your forthcoming book about nutrition. Is that right? Yes. Uh, what I've decided to do was to write a really short book, about 50 pages, because I've realized that the nutrition story is a big one. And I was thinking of writing a law of running on nutrition, but I realize it'll take too long. And, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm writing this very short outline for people who just want to know the basics. So why do we do it? Why is the evidence so strong for the paleo diet? Why is it so weak for the other diets? And what do I do if I want to become a paleo eater? And where resource, what resources can I find? And then I'm putting my other efforts into a website and trying to, to change the world through the internet because I know that that's the future. Books no longer are really the drivers of change. It's the internet that, that is driving change. And I'd like to be at the forefront of changing people's ideas on nutrition because I think it's the most important intervention. When I started in exercise, I thought exercise was the most important intervention. I think we now know that exercise is very, very important. And you can't be truly healthy without doing lots of exercise in your life. However, from my own experience, I was doing lots of exercise, but I was eating the wrong diet. And the wrong diet negated all the benefits I was getting from exercise. So I'd like to be at the forefront of those other amazing people, most of them Americans, who are driving the paleo diet and trying to get people to accept that we don't have to get old and we don't have to age and we don't have to get diabetes. We don't have to become obese. We don't have to get just wear out. Humans are not designed to wear out. We, we, we should be vigorously physically active and one night we just don't wake up in the morning and that's the way you go. Thanks again, Tim. It's been it's been a great conversation. Thank you, Aaron. It's been a great privilege to chat to you and uh, thank you for the most exciting questions that you asked and the insightful questions. It's been a, a great privilege to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tim. You've been listening to another Paleo Runner podcast. If you like podcasts, you're also going to like Audible.com. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Kindle, Android, or MP3 player. If you'd like to get a free audiobook download, go to audibletrial.com slash paleorunner or click on the link displayed on the app right now. Thanks for listening.